Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 42 of the Essential X Lapsed, where it looks like we're getting back to actual ex-villains here uh, for the first time in a little while. We've got a familiar face, a familiar foe even. So let's not waste any time because, uh, well, my mouth really hurts today. I had that crown put in yesterday, the permanent crown, and... Uh, yeah, I don't know if it was just the placement of where it was, or... I don't know. It, it hurts. <laughs> it hurts a great deal, so uh, let's hop in. This is X-Men number 32. Had a May 1967 cover date. The story is called Beware the Juggernaut, My Son, which... I don't know, seems, uh, seems a little bit uh, dramatic. Written by Roy Thomas, pencils Werner Roth, inks John Tartaglioni, letters Artie Simic, colors maybe Bernard the Poet... Catering, Irving Forbush, edit Stan Lee, cover price 12 cents. And we open, and it's a bittersweet day. It's a sad day, really, um, because not only can we no longer refer to Bobby Drake as, you know, the 16-year-old X-Man, but uh, the lad actually skipped straight to 18. So this is his 18th birthday. Uh, they grow up so fast. So yeah, Bobby is now of legal age, and his best gal, Zelda, is throwing him a birthday bash at... Where else? The Coffee A Go-Go. Not only that, she invited all of his friends as well, so... I think this would be Scott and Jean's first time in the presence of... The Bizarre Bernard, the Beat Poet. Speaking of which, uh, old freeloading Bernie uh, wanders over to the table to try and talk himself into maybe getting a slice of cake... And he also promises to compose an epic poem in honor of Kid Cool. And I, I wonder, I mean, maybe we can't call him Kid anymore. Though, I mean, young adult cool just sounds so square, don't it? Anyway, from here, Bobby and Zelda head off to the dance floor, followed by Hank and Vera. It's worth noting that Vera refers to Hank as lover. So maybe we've missed a story or two between them here, uh... You know, and I'm sure that when Claremont comes on and he starts writing those backup stories in classic X-Men, that I'm sure he'll have a he'll devote like several installments to the Hank and Vera relationship. So, no worries, we will get to the bottom of this. Uh, I guess if all else fails, we'll just uh, we'll fanfic it. Anyway, also we got Scott and Jean. They're out there cutting a rug, but almost like passive aggressively. So, <laughs> I mean. These two almost certainly deserve one another. Uh, they can't help but to be, like, the biggest downers here. Now, they're dancing, which, I mean, that should be a good thing, right? Well, Jean's scared that Scott's only dancing with her because he's he feels bad for her. She doesn't have a date. Meanwhile, Scott's scared that Jean's thinking about creepy Ted Roberts. So, um, neither of them are enjoying this. Just then, Warren and Candy arrive, and she's still spelling her name without the U, and uh, Warren is a total dork. He refers to his pals as agents. Agents. Like, what's up, agents? I, I, you know, Bob Haney gets a lot of guff for like his weird jive dialogue, but come on, Roy. Agents? Mm. Anyway, uh, he warns the crew that uh, you know they're free to look at Candy, but they'd best not touch. Um, Candy is happy to meet the gang and expresses a suspicious amount of interest in checking out the Xavier School. Huh. Jean says that uh, she'd be happy to have another female on campus. So does that mean she's, like, officially back on the team full-time? You know, maybe we have missed a story. We, we missed the whirlwind love affair between Beast and Vera and Jean rejoining the cast permanently. I don't know, maybe Roy will come back and do an X-Men Legends arc to uh, bridge this gap, or maybe we can pitch a uh, an X-Men 31.1 to, to get us, you know, 
better situated here. Anyway, this odd meet-and-greet uh, gets cut short by the bellowing of Bernard of the Beats. Now, he delivers a very straightforward poem in honor of birthdays. So straightforward, in fact, that a guy in the crowd who kind of looks like me calls him a sellout. Fair enough. From here, we shift scenes back to the mansion, where we're just about to learn what lie behind the brown door. That sounds like an adult film, and uh, don't, don't Google that. Uh, Professor X unlocks the massive oak door to reveal... Duh, the juggernaut. Uh, beware him, my sons and daughters. Uh, not only is Kane comatose, but he's also chained to a pretty ridiculous-looking chair. Chuck engages in a quick-and-dirty retelling of Juggy's origin, you know, the Korean War, the Gemisid Iraq, yada, yada, yada. Then an even quicker and dirtier uh, telling of the events of X-Men number 12 and 13, where the X-Men and uh, the unmentioned Human Torch defeated him. Uh, we learn that Kane's been comatose ever since, which, I mean, it's not like he's hooked up to any feeding tubes or anything. He really ought to be dead by this point. Anyway, the professor's got plans, but first, let's get back to the go-go. Now, no sooner does sellout Bernard finish rapping and snapping than our heroes hear the sound of revving motors. <laughs> and oh boy, um, okay, it's gonna get weird. Uh, through the window of the coffee house bursts five bikers on motorcycles. And they are Satan's Saints. And they have the adorable jackets with the patches to prove it. You see, the thing here is the leader of Satan's Saints, Rocky Rhodes, <clears throat> has the hot pants for Zelda because, I mean, who doesn't, right? Anyway, she turned him down in favor of Bobby Drake, if you can believe it. And, well, old Double R ain't pleased. So here's what they're going to do. Um, okay, I think the plan is they're going to ride their motorcycles through the window and then just drive around the tables of the Coffee Agogo. And, I mean, maybe they're going to try to run some people over? Uh, there, there really isn't much of a step two to this plan. It's like, what did Rocky Road say? It's like, okay, mates, burst through the window and then drive around. Anyway, even though our heroes are super-powered mutants, they've still got that tricky secret identity thing to protect. And so they got to be creative. So Bobby pretends to trip and fall, and since Bobby's a goofball, nobody thinks twice about it. And when he's on the ground, he ices up the floor. Now, this sends one of the bikers careening into the splat sound effect. Like, it doesn't actually appear as though he had anything but the sound effect. So, maybe Jean used her TK to mush the word together from various doodads around the place? Uh, you know, I might have to send myself a fake-ass no-prize for that one. Then, we got one of the saints who drives right toward the table between Scott and Warren. Alright, let's play this one out. This biker is plowing through the coffee house, not aiming to actually run anybody over, but instead to collide head-on with a table? I mean, is this like a scene out of the monkeys or something? I don't know. In any event, Scott and Worry tip the table over to make it like a ramp. Then the, you know, 500-700 pound motorcycle plus the Jaguar on it run up the tip table without breaking it or without breaking Scott and Warren's arms. Uh, the biker, you know, he's on the ramp, he goes flying, and he gets tangled up in some sort of avant-garde mobile that's hanging from the ceiling. Off to the side, Gene gently TK nudges two of the bikers together, causing them to crash into one another. And Beast keeps it simple. He just drop kicks the fifth and final of Satan's Saints. Well, don't know about you all, but I think we can stop right here. There's just no topping this. But alas, we, we're like barely at the staples. We still got like half the book to go. 
Now, the police arrive, and as they corral the saints, and our heroes pat themselves and each other on the back, we shift over to Xavier's dungeon, where the prof is hooking he and his wicked stepbrother up to an Energo Transformer machine, through which he hopes to invade Kane's mind and then send Sidorak back to the dimensionless void from whence it came. This doesn't work. Well, maybe it woulda, but... It turns out when Xavier did the thing, there was a third presence within the shared mind space. And no, you might be thinking, you might be thinking that the third, that third presence was Sidorak itself, and uh, it's not. And yes, I'm just as confused as you are. Not to worry, though. All will be revealed. Anyway, Xavier is KO'd by the feedback, or whatever, and the Juggernaut is awakened. Not only that, but he's also got Xavier's telepathic powers now. It's like proto-onslaught or something. Kane then reclaims the Juggernaut helmet and prepares to kill the X-Men when they return back to the mansion. Elsewhere, Bobby gets a birthday kiss from Zelda, which... We'll just take it at face value, right? Uh, We won't think about it too hard. We'll just say that Bobby was really into it, like he begged for it, actually, and we'll move on. Speaking of really being into it, let's shift over to the lovely Candy Southern's Upper East Side apartment, where she and Wari are having a cup of coffee. Now, Warren, being the stand-up gentleman that he is, decides that uh, the time has come for him to mosey on home. He then asks Candy if she wants to go on another date this weekend, but alas, the beauteous Miss Southern is already booked. Warren then heads to the Stang and wonders if, uh, you know, he wonders if maybe he's really got the hot pants for Candy, or maybe he's just rebounding from Jean. Speaking of Jean, let's join her and Scott as they walk through Central Park on their way back to the mansion. Well, first, um... Hmm. That's a heck of a walk, isn't it? I mean, maybe Continental Drift was different back in the 60s, but uh, from Manhattan to Westchester? I mean, that's a trek. Uh, Google says it's 26.8 miles and would take around nine hours. So that's a, that's a long walk. Anyway, it's during this endless hike that our star-crossed lovers finally actually talk to one another. Scott tells Gene about his deadly-eyed fears and how because of them, uh, well, he's scared to get close to anyone. Jean expresses a bit of relief that, you know, he doesn't have anything against her personally, and uh, basically tells our man that she really cares about him. Scott thinks to himself that he's now sure that Jean actually loves him, and he hopes to one day be brave enough to tell her the same thing. And, uh, how's about now? Otherwise, like, the next eight and a half hours of your walk home is going to be maybe a little awkward. I don't know. Well, rather than dwelling on that, let's rejoin Warren as he arrives home at the mansion. And we basically get a visual call back to the scene where Angel returned home and was attacked by Magneto back in issue 17. And Stan even gives us a footnote to remind us if we'd forgotten. So Angel enters the darkened and silent school and decides to maybe check the basement to see if the professor's still hard at work on whatever it was he was hard at work on. But the basement door is shut tight. Just then, Angel is taken unawares by another presence in the house, And when the lights come on, he discovers that it's the Beast. And Iceman, and Marvel Girl, and Cyclops, so it must be the next day or something. Anyway, from here, Cerebro starts pinging like a mofo. The team checks it out, only to find that the Cerebro that screams actually screams for thee. Or them. Uh, The X-Men are the enemy here. Cerebro then falls to the ground, crashing into bits. Just, I don't know how it falls over, it just does. The X-Men then decide to head into the dungeon, where the stairs turn into a slide. Of course, remember, the mansion thinks the X-Men are the bad guys here. 
They hear a voice from behind a stack of crates, and Warren flies in to get a better look at what they're dealing with, only to get thwacked by an onslaught of lumber, courtesy of the Juggernaut. We then get several pages worth of futile fighting and Marcosian exposition. He tells the X-Men that Xavier is KO'd, and it's also made pretty clear here that Juggy can now read minds. And so he easily defeats our heroes, at which point he receives a mental message from that third presence from earlier. Remember when Xavier was in his mind and there was that third presence? Well, ironically enough, the third presence was Factor 3. Huh. Now Kane's invited to join them, and after hemming and hawing for an entire panel, he decides he's down. He leaves the X-Men behind, feeling like it's not even worth the effort to end them once and for all. He then Kool-Aid mans through a wall in the basement to escape the rapidly flooding basement. Um, I mean, that, that seems... I don't know. We wrap up with the X-Men waking up, collecting their comatose leader, and attempting to deduce their next move. So this storyline must continue. It's a multi-parter. So I guess we could end this bit by saying, Sorry, Shirley. Well, I tell you what, it's uh, refreshing to be back in like a story that actually feels like an X-Men story. Uh, not dealing with fourth or fifth string villains from the fringes of uh, the Marvel Universe and actually dealing with someone who will actually be looming large in these books for decades to come. Of course, they didn't know this back in 1967, but uh, being the time travelers that we are, uh, we can appreciate it a little bit more than... Maybe seeing Plant Man, or The Locust, or El Tigre. Though I do kind of feel like they could have revealed this a little bit. Um, I feel like by the time we had the big reveal, it really wasn't a surprise anymore. We all kind of knew exactly who and what we'd be dealing with here. So that probably could have been done better, though, you know. It's hard to really put myself into the position of someone who was reading this at the time. So in any event, it's cool to have Juggernaut back and... Uh, it's cool that they're going to be moving forward with the Factor 3 storyline. It feels like that's been a stop-start for a little while now. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't mind that if uh, the stories we were getting in the interim weren't dealing with uh, yahoos like Mad Merlin and um, the Super Adaptoid. I'd say the Cobalt Man, too, but I actually kind of dug that story. And we'll put a pin in that for now, since uh, next issue promises more of the same. We'll, we'll dig deeper into it then. So what else do we have here? We actually had uh, Bobby's birthday party, which felt pretty cool. It felt like a nice little aside, and, you know, it's weird. I, I, I make the joke here on the show that the, the X-Men are, like, constantly sent on vacation. Like, in the past 10 or 15 issues, Professor X has sent them on vacation, like, five times. And it always feels so forced, and we get, like, those pages of them packing, <laughs> and then we get the pages of them leaving... Of course, with Cyclops saying that he won't leave until the professor tells him to leave, it gets very, very samey. Here, thankfully, we didn't have to deal with that, and we still got some downtime, right? We got some downtime with our team. We didn't have to do, you know, a hackneyed a danger room scenario that the professor could applaud at and say, Hey, you guys did great. Go on vacation. You're off for the rest of the day. We didn't have to deal with that. We just started in the middle of the party, which was a really good way to do this, I think. It saved us some pages. It saved us some... Nonsense. It just got us to where we needed to be right off the bat. So that was pretty cool. I liked seeing the X-Men just hanging out and uh, riffing off of one another. It was it was a good scene. It was a good scene, and um, we had some comedy with Bernard the Beat Poet doing his stupid thing. We finally had Hank and Bobby actually doing something kind of impressive in front of Zelda and Vera, so they weren't looked at as, you know, weirdos who just keep disappearing all the time. They actually took care of business, and that was pretty cool to see. 
and we really started to ramp up the uh, the more soap operatic elements between Scott and Jean. Which, and I, I don't know if this is just a result of me reading these day after day after day, but I'm starting to feel like these letter hacks that we uh, discuss on the show, the will they, won't they, is kind of kind of getting old. We need to uh, we need to evolve the story a little bit, and I think with this chapter we we kind of did. We can skip the biker scene for a moment and just jump to uh, Scott and Jean's walk home, where they finally, I mean, after all the time <laughs> that they've spent pining for one another in secret, they finally had something of a conversation, right? Scott comes clean about his fears and his concerns, and Jean understands. She understands and she lets him know that she cares about him and she's still there for him, and it was just a really nice scene. A nice and... Frustrating, but frustrating in a good way. I mean, after the chat, it's all but assured that they they harbor the same feelings for one another, but there's still something holding them back. It's just, uh, I don't know, it feels like we took a few steps forward, which is certainly (laughs) something that uh, we've been waiting for and that I uh, welcome with open arms. I suppose we ought to talk about Satan's saints, huh? (laughs) You know, I go back to the old chestnut here of, you know, uh, silly but fun. It was a silly but fun scene. And I swear you can almost hear the monkeys singing in the background. Uh, either that or, or yakety sacks, I guess. It was a wildly silly and fun scene. And it uh, nicely contrasted with the darker and more serious stuff going on in uh, Xavier's dungeon. So yeah, a fun issue. Um, now what I call it, you know, the, the show's called Essential X-Lapse. But what I call this an essential issue of the X-Men? Well, maybe, relatively speaking, uh, <laughs> compared to things like uh, the Magia plot... And um, the Locust, yeah, this is definitely essential in comparison to that. And while I can't for the life of me remember how the Factor 3 storyline wraps up, I do think we're headed for something, uh, relatively speaking, pretty fun. So uh, looking forward to it. I hope you are as well. But uh, that, my friends, is our story. Let's hop into the mutant mailbox here. And uh, we got a few letters, a few letters here. We're going to start with... And um, we're going to start off with me mispronouncing a name. Iman? Iman? I don't know. It's a fella in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And uh, despite the fact that I have the 77th most popular Irish surname, I can't pronounce words. You know that. So now, you might think that this fella is writing in to talk about how much he loves the Banshee. I mean, maybe that's a uh, oversimplification. But uh, no, that's actually not what he's writing in about at all. You see, Iman, or Amon, is a continuity cop. Now, they call Stan out for mislabeling Magneto as a mutant, claiming that in Magneto's first appearance, he had an origin similar to the Fantastic Four, spaceship, cosmic rays, and whatnot. Now, the character referred to here is... Duh, another Magneto. Actually, a character known as Magnetor, also known as Magneto, I guess they misprinted a few times in the one story that this person appeared in, and this one story appeared in Strange Tales number 84, had a May 1961 cover date, created by Stan and Jack. Now, in it, um, Magnetor, or Magneto, uh, was an eight-foot-tall, bald monster of a man named Hunk Larkin, and he was basically a social outcast. After being fired as a sideshow attraction, he signed up to be a test subject for the space program. Bingo, bango, bada-bing, bada-boom, cosmic rays, superpowers, revenge, and whatnot. So yeah, totally the same Magneto, right? I mean, you put them next to each other, you wouldn't be able to tell them apart. Mm. Well, now our Irish hack asks Stan if there's any... Let me see if I can say this right here. I said uh, Ruth to the Trumer, but uh, truth to the rumor is what I tried to say. 
that Millie the Model and Irving Forbush are romantically linked. While Stan denies Forbush's foibles and tells our man that the Magneto in that story is not the same Magneto as our Magneto. Magneto, Magneto, Magneto. And sometimes that Stan comes up with a name he loves so much he can't help but to use it more than once. John in Texas. He loved issue 28 and thought it was fab. He's not too keen on the Mimic joining the team, and he says that he's been hinting really, really hard to get his family to gift him a subscription to the X-Men. Stan suggests he hint harder, and maybe ask for Spidey and Fantastic Four as well. And, well, Stan also totally took the bait here. He gives John a free subscription to the X-Men, so that's, that's really all it takes. Dean in California loved issue number 28, and he compliments Stan's unsurpassable uniformed editing for the triumph here. He thought the Banshee was a far more interesting character than Eunice, Blob, Magneto, Mimic, and the Stranger. And he also loved the Ogre, which, I mean, that kind of discounts any opinion, doesn't it? He enjoyed seeing all the Marvel guest stars as well, and he would love to see more crossover. So, uh, talk about a monkey's poor wish, huh? We got Stanley in Pennsylvania, and this is a good one. Stanley's confused and angry. Very, very angry. How come Marvel keeps using the title, quote, When Titans Clash for their stories? Huh. He cites Tales of Suspense number 65 and Thor Annual number 1 as already using that title, and says that upon opening X-Men number 29 and seeing the title used a third time, well, that was enough for him to decide he wasn't even going to read the story. He immediately threw the book down and went to his writing desk to write a scathing letter about it instead. Stan says, hey, it's a pretty good title. Why just use it once? Or even twice? I gotta wonder if uh, Stanley is still reading comics these days and what he might think about the repetitive story titles, or even worse yet, in my opinion, the just plain lack of story titles. And you know, before we move on here, what, what do you all think about that? When, uh, when Marvel got too cool to put story titles in their, in their books... I remember that really annoying me. It was uh, the Quesada era, the early Quesada era. I usually attribute it to uh, the Bendis stories because so many of the Bendis stories didn't have titles. And, uh, you know, I keep a uh, spreadsheet of all my uh, comics, my entire collections in a, in a giant spreadsheet. And it includes things like story titles. And it feels like anytime Bendis would go on a book, <laughs> I would stop having titles. And I would just have to type in no title every single time. And it really annoyed me. I, I took it as... You know, sometimes I'll talk about how comics are ashamed to be comics. You know, how comics want to be more than comics. And, you know, that led to things like eliminating thought balloons and footnotes and thing, anything that would register to the, to the non-comics reader as something that might be a little too comic booky. And I think uh, story titles is, was one of the casualties of that shift. And uh, it bugs me. It really does bug me. And, like, even Bendis' current year stuff over at DC is uh, not quite as bad as it was at Marvel, because at least, like, the storyline will have a title. So it'll just be like, The House of L, Part 8, <laughs> Part 9, Part 10. And that's all it would be. It wouldn't have, like, a subtitle to really differentiate the issue, but at least, I don't know, at least there's a little bit more of an effort now than there was back then. Anyway, what say you? Let me know in the, uh, in the comments below. Uh, next up, Carl in Ontario, and... Uh, well, the first thing he tells us is that he's writing this letter from bed. Cool. Okay. Uh, he loves Marvel, but he has a few things he'd like to see changed. First of all, the romance between Scott and Jean has gotten downright pitiful, in his opinion. And uh, he says that it reads like bad soap opera. 
And he wants to see some kissing and groping, damn it. And uh, let's try not to think about how he's writing this from bed. He cites other, better romances in Mighty Marveldom, uh, Thor and Jane Forster, Spidey and Mary Jane, Iron Man and Pepper Potts. His second bit here, he'd like to see the X-Men embraced by the public like the Avengers are. Stan replies, uh, lambasting our man for hogging the cover. Oh, no, no, he uh, simply asks if, uh, if Carl enjoyed the Gene and Scott scene in this very issue. Finally, we have Gary in Indiana, but not in Gary, Indiana. He enjoyed issue 28, liked the Banshee, but thought the ogre was lame. So finally, someone's talking sense here. He was happy to see the X-Men fighting a mutant again instead of some corny villains. And man, you know, corny used to be one hell of an insult back in the 60s, wasn't it? I I think we gotta bring that one back. I'm gonna start calling things corny from now on. Uh, Gary then applies for a no prize by discussing how Scott's optic blast powers could exist in the real world. And there's a lot of words here. It has something to do with antiseptics and bacteria. And uh, as I mentioned, I do have a degree in science, just not that science. Stan's reply, I'd say it was short and sweet, but uh, it wasn't. It was very long, but it could be uh, distilled down to a single word. And that single word is nope. Those are our letters. Let's head into the bullpen bulletins. Also known as dazzling data, dizzy dispatches, and dangerous declarations of a rather dubious distinction. Got through it in one. Item. Merry Marvel Marchers have already received their copy of the first installment of the Merry Marvel Messenger newsletter. Stan says he wants to make a special offer to all lapsed marchers, offering them a discounted rate to rejoin, and says he'll even do it at cost. I tell you what, as a uh, fake-ass comics historian and fan of ephemera, I'd love to see one of these things. I'd love to get my hands on one of these things. And, you know, while I'm talking about that, uh, I was going through Amazon not too long ago. Um, Some of my family reached out to me uh, that we do uh, the Amazon wish list for Christmas gifts. So uh, I was asked to actually, you know, start one of those because I I had one years ago and uh, have never added to it since. So I was going through it. It's like, ah, what can I add here? And I saw that the... uh, those mini Marvel books that we talked about here on this show uh, several weeks ago here, they're the tiny postage stamp-sized books that could be used as, like, cake decorations and just, you know, as little books that were in, uh, I guess, coin machines and whatnot back in the day. Well, it turns out that Marvel actually reprinted those, like, a year ago. <laughs> Not long ago at all. They're larger. They're, uh, like, it's a little box set, sort of. They look thicker. They've got spines. It's all... Five or six of them that that, uh, were released back in 1966, but a neat little offering. Certainly not something I expected to see when I was browsing uh, the recent Amazon stuff, but uh, pretty neat. I I hope that I uh, get a set of those. Anyway, we got another item here, and it's that time of year again. It's time for the king-size summer special announcements. First up, we got Millie the Model, and uh, Stan says that that's for all your sisters and gal pals. Then we got Sergeant Fury and his whatchamacallums. Which, I mean, that's Stan's words, not mine. The following month, we'll see Daredevil and the Avengers, and then finally, Fantastic Four and Spider-Man. No Thor this year, because he'll be appearing in King-Sized Avengers anyway, so they get to uh, launch a uh, Daredevil King-Size here. No X-Men yet, but uh, it'll be coming. So if this year is anything like last year, I'm guessing we'll probably be talking about these specials for, like, the next five or six episodes. Um... And you know, while I'm thinking about it, conspicuous by its absence here, uh, we don't get any mention of the Marvel TV specials this time. I thought we were going to be getting those forever, so uh, not today. Uh, Item, Stan Dunn goofed. 
Now, you remember how last episode we didn't have a Mighty Marvel checklist? Of course you do, and if you remember that, you'll also remember that Stan said uh, that they omitted it on purpose. Well, that's not really the case at all. They uh, simply lost it. <laughs> they lost the checklist. It returns here today, which, I mean, nice. I guess I'm getting that minute and a half worth of material back, so that's a good thing. We've got some new faces in the Marvel bullpen. Welcome Dick Adkins. Uh, we saw Dick Adkins' work. He drew the cover of X-Men number 31. Also, welcome Ogden Whitney, which is a pretty cool name. Not as cool a name as Stockbridge Winslow, like we get in the, uh, the, the Golden Age stuff, but a cool name all the same. Welcome George Bell, and welcome back Herb Trimpey. And uh, Stan does tell us how to pronounce Trimpey. Item. The people want, nay demand, more Stan. And so, it's time for a new feature for the bullpen bulletins that uh, you may have heard of. Uh, They're calling it Stan's Soapbox. Now, in this blue box, uh, Stan basically spends skaty 800 words to inform us fearless front-facers that Marvel's top priority is... Entertaining us. So, a great addition, I guess? I don't know. Other wrap up. Uh, did you like the soapbox? If so, write in and tell Stan that you did because he needs your validation. Also, feel free to ask him any questions you'd like to see answered. It's time for the Mighty Marvel Checklist, the dramatic return. Uh, Fantastic Four number 63 has the Fantastic Four versus the Sandman and Blastar. Spider Man 49 has Spidey versus Craven and the Vulture. Avengers number 40 has a Submariner show up to uh, <clears throat> pop our corks. Daredevil number 28 has DD as a college lecturer, plus an alien invasion. So how current year is that? Thor number 140 has Thor versus the Stimuloid, which sounds like an adult feature. Probably not safe to Google. Strange Tales 157 has Fury versus Supreme Hydra, and I thought we killed him already. And Doctor Strange promises the end of the Ancient One. Suspense number 90 has Iron Man versus someone, and Cap turns traitor. So hey, how a uh, recent year is that? Astonish 92 has Namor versus It the Silent One, and Hulk starts a new and terrifying chapter. Sergeant Fury number 42 has Fury going AWOL, and of course we have Marvel Collector's Items Classic number 9, Fantasy Masterpieces number 8, and Marvel Tales number 8, which are reprints. Finally, we have the Merry Marvel Marching Society box, where 26 new members are initiated, and uh, none of their names really stand out. Uh, is John Bucci somebody? If not, well, there's nobody notable here. But that's our issue. Let's hop into our own mailbag here. We got a, a couple of short messages to go through. We're going to start with Billy D talking about X-Men number 31. He says, Hank sliding down Bobby's ice pole? A pole vaulting competition? Radiation? Horny teenagers? Science? And a snarky letters page? What else could we, the readers, ask for? And you're right, uh, after so many <laughs> issues of just, uh, blah, uh, this was definitely a step in the right direction. We get some of our old-school Silver Age silliness, and, uh, of course, the letters pages are always so much fun. But, uh, thank you so much for following along with me, Billy. Now, on the subject of the letters pages, Professor Allen sent a message saying that he loves the classic mailbag segments, and, uh, I tell you what, they are some of the most fun that I'm having doing these projects, is just going back in time and, uh, taking the temperature of the fandom back in the day. It's... You know, it's funny, uh, not too long ago, and I've mentioned this probably too many times, but I did that weird little segment where I gave advice on, on podcasting and just my experiences, basically. And one of the things that I neglected to mention or just forgot to mention 
that in such a crowded bubble that the comics podcasting world is and will continue to be, it might be in your benefit to look for something that makes your product stand out when compared to others. And and I feel like my inclusion of the Ancient Letters pages is something that uh, is kind of unique to, uh, to this show, to the essential show. And while an appreciation for the letters pages and the old ads and stuff, that's not unique to me by any stretch of the imagination, but... But it's also something that I feel has been largely ignored in uh, podcasts and blogs and stuff like that. And I can totally understand why, because to be completely honest, it kind of sounds boring, doesn't it? It's like, hey, we're going to talk about letters that were written a half century ago. It doesn't sound like the most interesting and engaging radio, does it? It sounds like uh, boring lecture time, right? It doesn't sound riveting in the slightest. And yet here we are, and it's been such a blast being able to uh, present and track and kind of snark back at the the letter writers of the day. It's definitely providing me with an unexpected joy (laughs) for this uh, project. I was not expecting to enjoy that quite as much as I am, and... uh, It absolutely makes my day to hear that uh, listeners are enjoying it as well. So uh, thank you, Professor Allen, and thanks to everybody who's uh, said nice things about the uh, mutant mailbox here on The Essentials. While on the subject of thank yous, let's head over to the shout-outs department here, thanking the folks who engaged with the social media posts about this show, helping to raise the profile of this little program. Over on Twitter, I want to thank Walt Neeland, Jesse DeYoung, Dave Schultz, Ed Moore, the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Billy D, 21st Century Boys, Joe Crawford, Chris at BTO and Bat Books, Mark Jagger, Wayne Burroughs, Pat Sampson, Cosmos, and Jason Colby. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Joe Crawford, Chris Bailey, Pat Sampson, Walt Neeland, Billy D, and Andrew Franklin. Let's hop over to the patrons over at patreon.com slash xlapsed. I'd like to thank Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Neeland, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse DeYoung, Damian, Peter McPherson, and Mark Jagger. You are all awesome for giving me the opportunity to... What is it that I do? I I, I don't know that I entertain or inform. Uh, (laughs) Whatever it is I do, I thank you so much for allowing me to do it and for all of your support. You guys are the best. Now, if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me and, uh, you know, tell me how much you love Stan Soapbox, please feel free to do so. You can reach me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapse voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. The blog posts and show notes are available at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Um, it recently came to my attention that xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com is... Uh, I'm just not looking right. <laughs> it's not looking right at all. Uh, the pictures, uh, the tiles, uh, it's it's a weird setup over there. Um, I have it where each episode has like its own little tile. So you can see like the cover or the cover art, I suppose. And that's not showing anymore. I don't know why it's not showing anymore, but it's not showing anymore. So if you look at it, it looks horrendous. Just another reason why I'm trying to get away from Blogger just as quickly as possible. So if you head over to xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, if that's where you go for the show, I apologize for it looking even worse than Chris's on Infinite Earths does. You can also join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. Of course, the complete audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on all your applications and or devices. And, of course, there is patreon.com slash xlabs where you can get a bunch of exclusive content and articles and much more to come. 
But, my friends, that will do it for today. I would like to thank you all so much for allowing me to hang out in your ear for a little while. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. See ya.